In a way, this week's Parsha is somewhat of a new beginning. It's a new beginning for Jewish people, obviously, certainly because in Parsha's bow is when they're redeemed. But in terms of the Torah itself, it's somewhat of a new beginning. Out of all the 613 mitzvahs, we only have three of them in the entire Chumash Bereshis. Number four starts in this week's Parsha. And apparently Chazal saw this as a new kind of uh, mitzvah being given in a sense. Because the very first Rashi in the Torah says that really the Torah should really begin from this week's Parsha. From the first mitzvah, Why does why does Chazal, why do they see that this week's Parsha's mitzvahs are different than let's say the first three mitzvahs in Bereshis? Because this is the first time a mitzvah was given to the Jewish people as Jewish people. The previous three mitzvahs, one was given to mankind, be fruitful and multiply. The second mitzvah was a, I guess, covenantal mitzvah with Avram. The third one was almost symbolic of something which occurred, in an incident in Yaakov's life. But now we begin the entire structure of what the Jewish people are, which is we have, we're given a body of mitzvahs that we have to observe as a nation, as a group, and therefore the question comes in, the question that the Jews have always been asking in various forms is, why do we need so many mitzvahs? Why so many mitzvahs? I'm a good Jew at heart, I mean well, I want to be a good person, why do we need so many mitzvahs? Why do so many mitzvahs structure themselves around Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? And really those are two parts, two kinds of questions. One, why the emphasis on Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and this constant remembering and remembering and so many mitzvahs. And that's something which we're not really going to deal with right now. Why specifically Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Why does it serve such a fundamental position in Jewish observance? But let's go back to the actual question itself. Why are we burdened with so many mitzvahs? How come? How come we need it? The constant repetition over and over, the constant davening that we do over and over, we recite Kriya Shema twice daily. How can we have all of these mitzvahs? And this gets to a fundamental um, principle in terms of Jewish education, in terms of how to give over to future generations, parents to children, which is also in this week's Parsha. The transmission from one generation to the next is in this week's Parsha. And although it's centered on the mitzvah of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, but it really in a sense, in the broader sense, conveys the fact that each generation has a responsibility to the next generation to transmit to them the Jewish tradition. And the most basic Posik that relates to that, page 157, Posik Ches, we have over here amongst the four children that we are required to transmit to them the Pesach tradition. So we have in Posik Ches the representative Posik for all of the children, because it's the most basic one of all. Very familiar Posik, the Gadatolavincha Bayom Hahu Leimor, you shall relate, convey to your sons on that day, saying, Bavur ze osa Hashem li b'tzeisim On account of this, 
God did for me when we came out of Egypt. Very famous Pasuk. We have it from the Haggadah. Rashi says on that, Bavur Zeh, Bavur She'akayim Mitzvosav Kegon Pesach Matzah Umar Halalu The word Zeh, which means that you're pointing to something, is referring to the Pesach Matzah and Mor that you're saying on that day. Bayom Hahu, referring to the day of Pesach. You shall tell your children on the day of Pesach, saying that on account of this Pesach Matzah and Mor, God did for me when He took me out of Egypt. But then there's another thing in the next Rashi. Also Hashem Li, God did for me. Why talk to your son as if you're saying what God did for me, which after all, if you aren't the one that came out of Egypt, you're only a Jew like all the other Jews that in a symbolic sense came out of Egypt, then why are you any different than your son? Why say to your son, God took me out of Egypt. God took us out of Egypt. By saying the word Li, you're either talking very personal or you're trying to, to indicate a kind of exclusiveness that it's me and not somebody else. Otherwise, you'd say us. So from here we see how we respond to one of the four sons, the Rosha. Remez tshuva ben Rosha. Loimar os Hashem li Hashem did it for me, not for you. Shilu ha'isasham, had you have been there, lo goyal you wouldn't have been worthy of redemption. This is what we have in the Haggadah, that we respond to the wicked son by trying to tell him that if he doesn't mend his path at the way he's going, that's the approach that would have been the Jews that stayed behind. I came out of Egypt because I did mitzvahs. <coughs> Upon analysis of this Pasuk, we have a number of problems. Firstly, just the Bavur Zeh on account of this God took me out of Egypt. Here again we have an interesting idea which the Beis HaLevi discusses. And that is that one should realize that the mitzvahs have a life of their own. They have a purpose in and of themselves they better the human being. They're not merely there because we were redeemed from Egypt therefore we owe God and we should do these mitzvahs. Just the opposite. In order that the mitzvahs should have meaning to us, God took us out of Egypt in order that He should give us the mitzvahs. But the mitzvahs are a purpose, not merely a consequence. If anything, the exodus was the result of the mitzvahs rather than the mitzvahs being the result of the exodus. <coughs> then, of course, it fits in much better. Bavur shakayim mitzvahs, says Rashi. Be- in order to be able to do these mitzvahs, such as Pesach, Matzah, and Moror, that's why I came out of Egypt. The question, of course, people have on the Medrash that says that Avram Avinu ate matzah on Pesach. Why would Avram Avinu eat matzah on Pesach when there was no exodus? The Territ says that each mitzvah has in it an infinite amount of wisdom and insight from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and it's all meaningful, with or without the exodus. The exodus is only merely one of the meanings. We come out of Egypt and therefore it has meaning to us. But the truth is there's other concepts involved in matzah versus chometz. Most of us are familiar. Matzah represents purity, the lack of fermentation. The, the chometz represents the fermentation of the heart. You take the letters, the mem and the tzaddik of matzah, the mem and the tzaddik of chometz, same letters. The only difference between matzah and chometz is a ches or a hay. And the difference between the ches and the hay is what? That a hay is a little bit open and the ches is closed. 
that little bit makes the difference between matzah and chametz. A little bit. In fact, there's another interesting chazal which we could probably fit in. It says that Hashem created the next world with a yud. Ki Hashem Hashem made the world with the name of yud hey. So, chazal tell us that the yud refers to olam haba, and the hey refers to olam hazek. Ki Hashem, because in the name of of yud hey. Surah Olamim is the foundation of the worlds, the two worlds, this world and the next world. Says the, says the Gemara. So why is the, this world written with a hay? Because the hay has like an open <coughs> clause, an escape, an escape clause, so to speak. That a person that sins is pointing downwards to, to, to wherever. And that little opening over there allows you to enter and allows you back if you do tshuva. With that, we could see that chometz represents the closing off. That doesn't let you get in. Doesn't let you get into Gan Eden. The hay allows. It's the escape clause. The ches is with the lack of the escape clause. So there's a lot of ideas that are represented in chometz and matzah independent of Pesach. The Exodus is merely one of it. In fact, what does it represent in terms of the Exodus? That we're that close from never escaping. We're so close, we're so full of sin, we're so assimilated that Hashem had to take us out in the nick of time. The importance of time and the importance of grabbing the opportunity when it's presented and not missing an opportunity. So in point of fact, the entire Exodus really represents the idea more than the idea represents the Exodus. It's not that we had an Exodus and therefore we have a mitzvah. If one looks through the entire historical process that was involved in the enslavement of the Jews and Exodus, you really see the idea of Matz and Chometz already there beforehand. And therefore these are independent mitzvahs in themselves. You don't need an Exodus for that. The Exodus merely becomes just a manifestation of the idea of, of taking the opportunity when it comes. We were driven out of Egypt in the nick of time. Maybe later on we'll get back to the, to the fact that why they had to go out that night exactly that night, 430 years before, and, and some of the other ideas that go into the fact that the Exodus had to occur at the last possible moment in the nick of time. These ideas are all independent. You don't need, you don't need Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. They're valid in themselves. Avram Avinu was able to celebrate and ceremoniously perform these mitzvahs and the ideas that the mitzvahs represent without an Exodus. So you could have mitzvahs independent of the historical events that surround them. We were taken out of Egypt so we should have mitzvahs. So mitzvahs have their own life. But the other part of the Pasik though, interestingly, is that you're referring here to the wicked son. But we also know that this is the Pasik of the She'ene Odei Alisho. Out of the four sons, this is the son that's represented by the one that doesn't even ask. In all the other places, there's four places in the Torah where it discusses how fathers should should convey and relate the Exodus to their children. Three of them are in this week's Parsha. We have, as a matter of fact, there are two other places in this week's Parsha where, where there's a discussion of how fathers should give it over to their children. Pasik Chavov in Perakut Beis on page 154. Then again we have Right after this, on the bottom of page 157, 
Mazos. We have three of the four sons mentioned here. The fourth son is in Pashas In all the three other places, there's a dialogue, or seemingly a dialogue, where one son is making a statement or a question and you're responding to it. This is the only Pasik that says, give over even if they don't ask. There is no, there is no um, prerequisite question before the mitzvah is given, it tells you whether he asks, whether he doesn't ask, give it over anyway. Therefore, from here we learn out the the son that doesn't even question, we're still supposed to relate it to him. That's where we get the four sons. Four places in the Torah, each one represents a different kind of son, a different kind of response. The question then becomes, how come in the same posse that we're talking to the young child who doesn't know anything, why in the same Pasuk do we also have an allusion to the Russia, to the wicked son? The same Pasuk that tells us what to do to a child that doesn't even question, obviously a young child, why is this where we also have the response to the Ben Russia? Let's take a look at the words of the Ksav Seifer. Ksav Seifer says the following, the Medrishkan Remez Chuval Ben Rosha, that this is a response to the Rosha. The Gamla Rosha Meshiv Bavurzos Hashem Li, because to the Rosha you're also in effect saying, Hashem took me, in other words, me, but you wouldn't be worthy. The Tsarach Lohoven, Eich Beshene De Elisha Miramis Chuval Rosha Mayano Lakan. Why put in the same Pasuk where the Pasuk is obviously referring to the Shene De Elisha? Why is this the place? to put in the response that you give to the Russia. The What does it mean by Yom Hahu? Although Chazal say it's referring of course to the day of Pesach. Kvardashu, Chazal Haide by Yom Hahu, nearly. So he says like this, very important principle here. That nowadays he says, through our great sins, Harbei Po'amim, May ovos yireim u'shleimim, you find God-fearing, good, pure, Torah-observant fathers, children, parents, hamachzikim betumasam, and yet yetsay yotza ben rosha kizeh. Yet you will find the children veer, you'll find the children go astray, and you'll have a son who's a ben rosha. How does a tzaddik? How does a good, God-fearing, Torah-observant Jew get a ben rosha to begin with? that he has to give this kind of a question, that he has to give this kind of answer. He makes fun of the traditions of his ancestors. He also, he will cast aside behind his back the mitzvah observance. But he says this is something which we have witnessed that very often the fault lies with the education that the fathers give to their children. And we've discussed how attitudes of the parents sometimes carry on to their children and become magnified and much worse. That if you observe mitzvahs in a, in a lackluster fashion, it's going to manifest itself to the children in a different way. But here we're going to discuss quantitative education rather than qualitative education from a parent. And that's the following. Because sometimes a lot of parents 
think in the terms that the Jewish education will begin later. I have more important things that I have to give over to them, such as what kind of college they're going to go into, start them off with Barney and Sesame Street, and whatever you, have, you start them with. Every Jew has an obligation in the Torah to teach Torah to their children. When does this begin? The obligation to teach Torah to our children. When does it begin? So the Gemara and Sukkah. Right, the Gemara and Sukkah says that each mitzvah you are supposed to start training your children when he's capable of that particular mitzvah <coughs> tefillin is the one that's latest because it's very difficult to keep your tefillin and to keep it well with the right respect with a goof tar with a with a body that's clean therefore you start the mitzvah of tefillin training almost right before the bar mitzvah that's one of the reasons why Nowadays, we don't wear tefillin all day. In the old days, they used to wear tefillin all day, but even adults, because we don't trust ourselves. It's one of the reasons why out of all the mitzvahs in the Torah where we say women, if they voluntarily or optionally want to take it upon themselves, they can take any mitzvah they want on themselves. The one that's accepted or, or that's, um, that they're told not to is tefillin. Because even uh, adults, males, we don't totally trust ourselves. Yet, because we're commanded, we do it. So we do it for the period of davening, a little bit afterwards, maybe some people learn. But we do it for a minimal part of the day. We don't wear tefillin all day long. Therefore, if you're not obligated to do it, for example, women, they're told to avoid it. So women are, are discouraged from wearing tefillin. may not be totally forbidden, but they're certainly discouraged. By the same token, children only begin right before their bar mitzvah for that reason. But a mitzvah such as lulav and esrig, as soon as the child is mature enough to be able to, to properly use a lulav and esrig, that's when the obligation of chinuch begins. When does the obligation of Torah chinuch begin? When is he considered mature enough to be able to learn Torah? At what age? So Chazal tell us, to speak in them. In other words, when the child is able to speak, his words should be words of, of Hebrew. Loshna Kodesh. Not necessarily Ivrit, but Lashon HaKodesh. But we're trying to give over mitzvahs and Torah. We're not just trying to give over a language. We're trying to teach them skills that they're going to use for Torah. Therefore, the first thing parents teach their children is Torah Tzivolonu Moshe. So we see that when does the obligation begin? Remember, we once said another place where we had Bayom Hahu. And that was by the Brach of Ephraim Uminasha. That it says over there, we remember we said from the Targum Yonas and Ben Uziel that on that day Yonas and Ben Uziel says when is Bayom Hahu that day? By the Bris Mila. That's when you begin to bless the children. You begin the education as soon as possible. Shammai Hazoke began the education of his grandchild when he was still in the crib. He removed part of the roof and he put schach over it in order that the baby should sleep in the sukkah. They should also have that mitzvah as well. Bayom hahu, as early as from the very beginning. Vigarto levincho bayom hahu, vidibarto bom. You teach them Lashon HaKodesh. Koidim sheyilmoy shar l'shoynes. 
before you teach them other languages. Obviously, this would certainly apply much more when the Jews were living in Eretz Yisrael. The idea is that you want them to learn foreign languages and you want them to learn all kinds of, of foreign wisdoms. The first thing that you teach them is Torah. The reason why just to, uh, to be melamed on Americans, it's not really our fault because what happens is that the children pick up the conversation and therefore becomes a kind of subliminal education even though we don't purposely educate them to speak English before they speak Hebrew. But certainly you try to teach, the first thing you should be teaching your children is Torah. I should point out, although I'm not trying to criticize any schools, but most schools, most Jewish schools, first grade, they begin, or some in pre-1A, they begin the olive base and the ABC at the same time. They begin the olive base and the ABC at the same time. They begin to teach the skills of reading a sitter and reading um, see spot run at around the same time. One could maybe possibly criticize that or not. There's a school in Muncie that symbolically at least they, they teach the children only in first grade Hebrew skills that they should realize this comes first. They teach them Chumash and these things first grade no secular studies. Secular subjects begin only in second grade. Most schools don't do it like that. But there are some schools in Westchester that do the reverse. Since you can't teach a child two different languages to read at the same time, so you have to pick one. Which one do they pick? English. Do you realize what that means symbolically at least as to what you're trying to convey? It's a violation for the bar True, we don't teach our children Lashon HaKodesh when they're three years old, but that's not really, that's, that's inadvertent. But you're sending them to school. And what are you conveying to them with these kind of values? Yeah, you'll teach them Hebrew, but wait for second grade that they should be able to start reading Hebrew. In first grade, teach them English. That's a violation of this whole idea. Every Pesach, we say this in the Haggadah. How could a school that purports to give over Jewish values and Jewish tradition and Jewish education begin the learning process of a child by saying, see, spot, run, instead of Torah, see, volonu, Moshe. How is that possible? That's a violation of the principles of what Jewish education is based on. I'm not talking quantity right now, or quality rather. I'm not talking about the qualitative values that you give over to your children. I'm talking about quantitatively. When do you begin education? Says the Ksav Seifer that you're supposed to do it when he's still She'ene Yodea Lisho. While he is yet a She'ene Yodea Lisho. The first things that you feed him before he asks questions. You're supposed to feed him Torah before he even asks. Therefore, Chanoch Lenar Al Pidarko if you fulfill this dictum before you learn the other languages, you begin to train the child according to his abilities. Then you can be confident in most cases. Again, nowadays we have multitudes of other problems that could lead people off much later on in life and we miseducate our children as well. But generally one could assume that using this approach we have the guarantee of Shlomo HaMelech in Mishlei that says, If you begin a child according to his abilities at the earliest time 
and you give him as much as he's able to take, you have nothing to worry about. Gam ki even when he ages later on, lo menu, he will not deviate, he won't veer away from Torah. Before he starts wandering off in strange lands and strange pastures, and before he starts questioning and probing, and you haven't given him any Torah yet, before he does all of those things, Hashem is Borach, Adibir Chazal, Vishamu Bashamayim, PM Lushayim Talach Borad, Berz Ketoshim, Achar Borad Hema, Ki Ozlo Yishma Lakolavoso, then it's too late. If you begin with all other kinds of knowledge and wisdoms and literature and questioning and probing and all of these things, then already he's not going to come back to you and he's going to make fun, he's going to mock, he's going to think he knows more. You know, the younger generation, don't trust anybody over the age of, well, I won't say over the age of 30 anymore, but that's what they used to say when we were growing up, right? Then already they're not going to listen. Once you start educating them, question and probe and let them decide for themselves, then already they're not going to come back. It's very difficult. Some do, but it's very difficult. They make fun, they mock, they assume their parents to be mistaken. Therefore, our obligation is Zrizus, with enthusiasm. Start the process right. This should be the first thing given over to them. While they're young, before their minds, their budding minds have matured and developed to question and to probe. There's nothing wrong with questioning and probing. You can ask questions. Jews, with all of their faith and with all of their belief, were never accused of being stupid. But the point is, if you think you're going to be smart by letting the child question and probe, then already, chances are, they're not going to make it. If you give them, if you spoon-feed it while they're still young, while they're still she'enah, they are lishos, it's v'yigadato levincha. You open up to him, as the Haggadah says, you open up, open up to the child, begin the Torah education process at that point. Then already, then later on, he won't stray. We have a very interesting medrash. Some of you may be familiar with it. The medrash relates on the Pasuk. The Yalkut says, Vayoel Moshe Mosheves Yisro that Moshe agreed or he swore to live with Yisro. What was the oath taken that Moshe made to Yisro? So the Medrash tells us that the first child that he's going to have should be given over to idolatry study. To study idolatry, to become a priest of Avodazar. And the question everybody asks is how could Moshe agree to such a thing? And the Balaturim discusses why Moshe made such an agreement with Yisrael. But perhaps a more fundamental question, asks Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, is why Yisrael himself made this, kind of a, made this kind of a deal with Moshe. By this point in Yisrael's life, Yisrael has already been rejected by the Egyptians and by the Midianites, by everybody, because he already went searching and he was, uh, 
he himself was at one point a priest to different forms of Avodah but he came to faith in God. That's why his daughters had to draw water from the well, and that's why everybody persecuted them, because Yisra was, a, was an Oisnam. Yisra was an exceptional person that everybody sort of like despised because of his rejection of Avodah So if Yisra at this point in his life rejected Avodah why would he make a deal with Moshe Rabbeinu that the first son should be given over to the study of Avodah Zarah? Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, what Yisro wanted was to duplicate himself. Yisro felt that if I'm going to have a grandson brought up in that Haredi household of my son-in-law Moshe Rabbeinu, he's going to be brought up to be a black hatter. He's going to have this closed-minded view of everything. He's going to be narrow-minded. His religious observance won't have the breadth and the scope that I have. Because I studied it all. I went to colleges, I went to universities, I became a priest by this Avodah I became a teacher by that Avodah I searched and I probed and I experimented. And through all of my experimentation, I came to faith in Hashem. I have a much deeper, much more stronger abiding faith in Hashem than I would have if I would have been brought up in the household of Moshe Rabbeinu. He wanted, I want my anical to have the benefits of my miseducation in order that he could search and probe and experiment and come to the true faith in Hashem to a level like Avram Avinu. Yisro duplicated what Avram Avinu did. Avram Avinu also searched and Avram Avinu came to faith and his faith was certainly much deeper than everybody else's. So Yisro says, I want my anical to be the same thing. I want my grandchild to be brought up the same way give him free will, but to give him choices in order to let him choose. And he'll come to the truth on his own. And then the truth that he comes to will be a much greater truth and a much deeper understanding and a wisdom. And this, by the way, is true. But the Torah tells us that's not the Jewish educational approach. That's not the approach. It's interesting. By Avram Avinu, we find the exact same thing. Hashem says, It's all the nations of the world will be blessed in Avram. He's going to be a great nation. But what's the greatness of Avram? He's going to command his children, give over the mitzvahs to his children. To, to guard the way of the Lord. The ultimate greatness of Avram was not only a recognition that he came to on his own, but he's going to educate his children. Not with the searching and the probing, because what tends to happen in the majority of cases, although there's exceptions, is that they go off and they never come back. The Yisro approach to miseducation is not the Jewish one. You don't start them off learning Torah in second grade. And first grade you teach them the great wisdoms of the world where you see spot run. That's not the way you educate Jewish children. You start them off right away. Torah, Siva, Lanu, Moshe, It's an inheritance. Uh, what's the difference between an inheritance and other ways of acquiring money? The other way, you have to earn it. You work for it, you struggle for it, and you earn it. What's an inheritance? It's your heritage. It comes to you naturally by itself. Give it over as an inheritance. Give it over as a, as a heritage to your children before they ask, before they probe. That's what you begin in first grade, not see, spot, run. 
Now I, I think they do other stuff now. Now Tether has two mommies. They want to give him over those values instead. Because that's what they're trying to do. They understand the Torah approach to education. Teach tolerance before they become intolerant. I mean, with the guy with all of this idea that how could you narrow them, how can you be so narrow-minded and everything else, no one's going to say, teach them no values. Everybody says you got to teach values. They just don't want Torah values to be taught. Keep God out of the schools. Keep your religion out of the schools. Keep the Ten Commandments out of the schools. But what do we have to teach them? Start them off right away with Pocahontas. Start them off with multiculturalism. Start them off with tolerance for alternative lifestyles for the gays. Heather has two mommies. This is a family. This is a family. They're also right away. But the kids don't even understand yet. That's when you got to get the kids. They understand these values out there because the biggest proof is that the things that they consider important, that they put in right away. What they consider important, they want to teach to the kids while still the Garto Levincha. Before Ki before they come up with questions, before they may chas v'shalom, be intolerant of alternative lifestyles, they want to teach you Vigarto Levincha, spoon feed it. Torah and spirituality and values and religion and the Ten Commandments, let them search and probe and come to it on their own with free choice, with free will. Farker, the Torah's approach is keep Heather and her two mommies and Spot and, and Ted and Nancy for later. First you start off with while he's still yet that's when you begin at that point when he's still that's when you begin Torah not the Yisro approach and yes the Yisro approach has certain value because you come to a deeper understanding but what interestingly enough happened with this Moshe Rabbeinu had a, an anical who was Actually, um, uh, it was actually a um, a priest to Navodazar to Pesel Micha. Moshe Rabbeinu had a grandson who was the son of of Gershom, the first son, who was the and in fact the Torah refers to it as Gershom ben Menashe, and the nun is hanging over there because it really should be read Moshe, not Menashe. If you take the nun out, it's it's um, the word is Moshe. So the Navi has it again, each little thing in the, in the Torah, the way it's placed, you, you're able to see these clues and these hints over there. You have the name Moshe, the Nun is hanging above it, so you wind up reading it in Asher. They tell us the reason is because it's, it's a kind of a thing, it's, it's, an, it's insulting, it's embarrassing to Moshe, so we read it in Asher. But the Nun, it's always that Nun, the Nun that's left out of the Ashray, that represents the fall. Moshe becoming Menashe, Menashe ben Chizkiah. We try to attribute the blame on a more blameworthy person, but ultimately what happened to this Yisro's approach? It backfired. It backfired. And yes, Gershom himself came out okay, but his son already, hey, Pop was learning about Avodazor. Let me learn that. Yes, he came to the right path. That's not the Jewish approach. It backfires. And therefore all these people that want to be Jews in heart and want to educate their children later on, they're in violation of the Igaratol Vincha Bayom Hahu. Soon as they're able to speak, that's when it begins. Therefore, says the Ksav Seifer, we could with this understand why the Shein the Alisho and the Russia are in the same Pasik. Why is that? Shemazir, that it warns us. The Pasik is trying to warn us. Start the education on that day. When? 
bizman shu bekatnuso when he's still yet young shein de alisho kol kach shein de alisho start him up when he's still so young that he's not probing and inquiring and questioning vein yochol is born in cloud and he doesn't even understand you know it's interesting just again just another illustration of how the ideas nowadays are so corrupted and so the direct opposite of Torah values. I'll give you another example. I'm going to strike home to the heart of, of some of the issues that people may be a little bit uncomfortable with. At what age do you separate boys from girls in the, in the school system? The reason why I say at what age do you separate them because the question of whether you do separate them or not has never been a question. Everybody agrees that co-education is wrong. There's not one reputable POSIC that ever said, including Rabbi Soloveitchik, who everybody relies upon, that hell, this is the way to educate our children by putting boys and girls in the same class. I'm speaking here to a group of men. There'd be women here, some of them would, would object. But every man in this room knows why, as an adolescent, you should not be learning in the same class with a bunch of girls. I think that goes without saying. Everybody understands the problem of of classroom and trying to learn Torah with girls around, have chavrusas with girls, I mean, it, it's quite obvious why. So there's never been a question as to when to separate, as to actual separation. The question is when do you separate them? Says Rav Moshe in the tshuva, certainly once they reach the age of where they understand certain ideas of the or horror, at that point is when you certainly have to separate them. Nine, eight, nine, ten, eleven, at that age, you certainly have to separate them. But he says, preferably, you should separate them earlier. Why? What should be the point of separating them at six? After all, there's no Yetzirah between a boy and a girl, male or female. There's no hormones there. What's the point in separating them at that age? He says, Chinuch. Let them learn for later. Get them before the Yetzirah comes. That there has to be certain things that you have to be careful about. You don't have to go tell them everything. But this should become part of their bones. They should go into their structure that as Jews they have to realize before the Yetzirah comes. Now this sounds rather radical. This sounds radical. That a person should have to educate kids and separate them from girls before there's even a Yetzirah. Come on, let them play. Let them play for a while. There's no problem. That you're going to start them off before they even have the Yetzirah? Over there we question. How many people would question this Psaacover of Moshe Feinstein that says that by 9, 10, and 11, you certainly have to separate them? It's preferable for the sake of Chinuch to separate them at age 6 and 7, even though they don't have Yetzirah. That sounds so extremist. That sounds so radical. That sounds so narrow-minded. What, you don't trust the kids? You got to do it before they even have the problem? But in the ways of the world, that's exactly what we do. Mitzvah observance, Torah values, we begin immediately. It's the other Narishkeit that have time for later on. Now we have people that have reversed it. That's why we always say, Das Balabatim Hetach Das Tar. You see how true it is that the mind of the, in the Balabatim Shevelt is always the opposite of Torah values. If you want to know what the Torah values are and you don't know you have a doubt, you just go into the world and see whatever they say, do the opposite. And you see it all the time. You see that when it comes to these things, they've already hit on the Torah ideal, but they've perverted it and reversed it to teaching them all of the perversions and don't teach them any religious values. We hold the opposite. In first grade, it's Torah Tzivu Alonu Moshe. Says, therefore, the Ksav Seifer, if you do this, 
the Torah tells you this is the time to do it when he's not even questioning yet, when he doesn't understand. And we all wonder, why kids don't understand? Why are we drilling into them? We're brainwashing them. But everybody brainwashes your child. You want your child to grow up thinking, is murder good, is murder bad, is tax evasion good, or is... I mean, you know, everybody tries to brainwash their children in good values. It's only Torah values that people have problems with. The Torah tells you, no, if this is clear in your mind, then you have to realize, and when you do that, that's when you teach him faith, that's when you teach him Jewish values, that's when you teach him your Torah heritage. You teach him all the stories, you teach him about the Exodus, you teach him about all of these things that are to inspire a child into faith in God. Let the philosophy come later. The probing and the questioning can come later. And they won't be stupid from it. They won't be narrow-minded and brainwashed. Teach them the miracles of Egypt right away. Let them be impressed. Let them be inspired. And let them see how Hashem watches over us. That's when you're supposed to do it. Therefore, the Medrash says here, this is a remez to a ben Russia. Why did we put the Russia in the shame of the Elisha? To tell you, if you don't do this, if you don't do the vigaratol of vincha bayom ha'hu, then you know what you're going to have. You're going to have to use this pasik again. Leave alone, You're going to unfortunately, Rahman al have a child where you're going to need the other part of the pasik. If you don't start your children off, vigaratol of vincha bayom ha'hu leymar bavurzeh osa Hashem, then you're going to have to start saying, leave alone, and you're going to have the Ben Russia. To avoid the Ben Russia, you start with the she'enu yodeh lisho. That's what this Medrash is telling us over here. If you don't do this and you let the time pass and he grows up and he's no longer a Shayim the day Elisho, what you have is you have a child. But your child, Chas Shalom, could be Yetzei ben Rosha, Sheisha Bader He's going to ask and he's going to question and he's going to probe, but his questions are going to be questions of mockery. And you will be forced to give him the other response. The response of Bavur Zeos Hashem Li, leave low low. If you want to avoid that, you avoid that by starting the process as a she'ena yodea lisho. If you don't, then you may be forced to give the other answer of the ben rasha. Therefore, the answer to the ben rasha is is specifically placed, is intentionally placed in the pasuk of the she'ena yodea lisho to tell you that both things really come from the same root. Let's now go back to our original question. Why the multitude of mitzvahs that we have constantly? And this also is really only a question that people have against the Torah. Nobody questions why does every single pack of cigarettes have to say the Surgeon General's warning? I've seen it already in the last pack of cigarettes. Why do I have to see it again? Why does every billboard have to have it? Why does AIDS awareness require commercials on and on the constant drumbeat? I've heard it. So I know it already. What's the point? Nobody questions that. Everybody understands how Madison Avenue works, that each commercial has to say the name of the product five times in order to impress your mind, and then you see it again later on and again. Everybody understands all of these things, subliminal, and to drill it into you, and nobody questions the need to be constantly drilled in all of these things. But everybody will ask the same question about the Torah. So why do I have to say Shema twice a day? Let's read the words of the Chinuch. The Chinuch, in this week's parsha, Mitzvah Tezayin, when he discusses the multitude of laws regarding regarding the Korban Pesach and the Matzah and all of these things, 
he talks about the constant repetitive nature of all the mitzvahs. So he wants to lay down a foundation here from which you should learn and, t- and take this as a lesson and a model for all the mitzvahs. And again, that's what I'm saying, this week's Parsha represents the beginning of the Jewish people in terms of the Jewish concept, whether it's in terms of chinuch or mitzvah observance, and why we as a nation have so many mitzvahs. The Sefer Chinuch, of course, was written. In fact, the book means chinuch. Chinuch means education. It's the book of education, the book of training for, your, for the young. It was actually written for his own son. It was written for his son so that he should be able to have what to do on Shabbos. His son at the time was an adolescent. And he wrote him a Sefer Chinuch, whereby he goes through all 613 mitzvahs. And he gives out all the reasons and he do all, a lot of the details of the mitzvahs. And at this point he says like this. He says, human beings are naturally influenced by their actions. The activities that you do externally influence your internal mental and emotional makeup. Through the deed and through the things that we do, we thereby acquire and establish and entrench in ourselves in a permanent way. In other words, if we go through the Seder and we go through this whole thing and we are able to then put it into our minds and emotionally in, in fantasy and in fact, it then becomes entrenched firmly. And do not think, my son, to grab me on this and to question and say, Why do we need so many mitzvahs? just to commemorate one miracle. We're not going to discuss why Yitzhak Mitzrayim itself is so important. But just the actual, the whole idea of why we need so many mitzvahs. One time you know it, you know it. You watch Schindler's List once, you already know about the Holocaust, you don't have to keep watching it twice a day. You've already established it in your mind, you know it, you understand it. Says the Chinuch, no, my son, that this is not a wise question that you've asked. What you're saying is not wisdom by questioning this. Because again, he's speaking to the son here. And it is your youthful, adolescent, immature mind that, that misleads you to speak like this. Now, my son, if you understand, if you're a little bit discerning and wise and understanding, Shimazais. Listen to what I'm going to tell you now. Give ear and listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. I'm going to teach you some useful information about Torah and Mitzvah. You should realize this fundamental fact of nature. Every human being is influenced by the activities that he does. No matter how great or how small you are. We're going to use an example shortly about... What does it mean that a great person can also be influenced by, by minor actions? His mind, his heart, are always going to be following his deeds, his actions. Whether you're doing good things or bad things, it's going to influence the way you think and the way you feel. Even if you take a wicked person, he's wicked in heart. He's only thinking of bad things at all times. He's not a good person. He's basically a bad-hearted individual. 
if his spirit would somehow be aroused, and he'd spend his daily activities in doing mitzvahs and in the study of Torah, even if his original intent was not for lofty, holy purposes, but immediately, slowly but surely, he will immediately begin to feel the effects and be schlepped and dragged to do the good. Well, this is the principle that the Gemara always tells us. Do mitzvahs even shalol When from not from doing it shalol you come to do it lishma, you become altruistic. The way to teach altruism to children is not by trying to teach them to be altruistic. First, you get them to do good things. And they keep going on and on. Eventually they become altruistic. First you do Torah and mitzvahs, even for, for not the most noble intentions and purposes, you'll come to that eventually. The Rambam says, in Parish HaMishnayis, he says, HaKol Lefi Rov HaMasa. He says that everything is judged based on the multitude of your deeds. Says the Rambam, look carefully how Pirkei Ovis says, everything is based on the multitude of deeds. Rov Hamasa, the many deeds, not with the Godl Hamasa, not based on the greatness of your deeds, but on the multitude of your deeds. One usually thinks quality is more important than quantity. It's true, quality is certainly more important than quality than quantity. Certainly, when God weighs mitzvahs, when God weighs mitzvahs on the scale, one mitzvah could outweigh many other mitzvahs or many other averes in the reverse as well. But that's only true when it comes to weighing the value of things. When it comes to educating and, and teaching the person value, that you need quantity. For that you need quantity. Says the Rambam, a person that writes out a million dollar check once a year to tzedakah is not the same as the person that has to write a million one dollar checks. If you give to each person tzedakah, even though you're only giving a penny, rather than saying, you know what, don't bug me, come to me once a year and I'll give tzedakah to one general charity fund and then you'll distribute it, which is the way a lot of shows happen, it's a practical way, I'm not against it, obviously it has a practical benefit because what happens is otherwise people don't wind up giving, here people wind up giving more, you know, it, it's better to give than not to give, unfortunately we're holding by that stage, so therefore you need a general charity fund for that reason, but what is the best way of getting people to do tzedakah and to become good people? by having them constantly nudged by one mishulach after another, after another, after another. You go from one to another. And you give tzedakah again, and again, you're giving little amounts. But if you do it over and over and over again, it influences your heart. You become a baal tzedakah. If you give once a year, don't bug me, don't come back, and I'll give you a big check. That's not going to influence you the same way. It's one big deed. Many little deeds are much more important than one big deed. It's interesting, by tzedakah there's a concept of kol pruta, upruta, mitztarf, l'chesh ben godl. Each penny adds up to a great sum, which most people understand to mean that, basically what that means is that uh, you think you're only giving a little, you'd be surprised. The pennies add up, the pennies turn to dollars, a penny saves a penny earned, and what's the other cliche for this, how pennies add up? That we think more in terms of the fact that, that you know, right, the count of pennies and the dollars take care of themselves. And that's how Tzedakah makes a lot of money, little mailings. I mean, all these guys on television, these televangelists, they make it from these little widows that give in $10 <laughs> at a time, not from the big donations. 
But I think here we have a deeper truism here. Not only called prutum, prutum is tarv lecheshben gadol in the sense of you have a lot of tzedakah. For the person himself, by giving one pruta after another, it'll add up that you have a tremendous amount of merit, much more merit than you will by just giving in one shot, you give a hundred dollars. If you give a dollar a hundred times, you have a hundred times mitzvahs, rather than just one mitzvah of a hundred dollars. Each pack of cigarettes have to say the Surgeon General has determined eventually makes an impact. And you have to have one after another after another. Hakol lefi rov hamasa. Through the multitude of deeds. That's what he's saying over here. The Torah gives us a multitude of mitzvahs because the Torah recognizes this truism of human nature. And therefore, if you're a wicked person, but you start doing one thing after the other, you start off shalol you start off without the most noblest of intentions. Eventually those things follow. People's thoughts and emotions and values follow their deeds rather than the other way around. We're used to thinking the other way. If you're a good person, you do good deeds. If you're a bad person, you do bad deeds. It's really the opposite. If you're a good deed doer, you'll become a good person. If you're a bad deed doer, you'll eventually become a bad person no matter where you began. The Chayvus, the, 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 brings down an entire thing about how a person learns to develop love for somebody else. He says not the way people think in terms of if I love someone, I'll do you favors. You know what? You want to get to love mankind and to love people? Do them favors. You do good things to people, you will come to love them. The emotional bond follows the physical things that you're doing for them. Rather than the reverse where you begin, if I love you, I'll do good things for you. No, I'll do good things for you. I will learn to therefore love you. You learn to love God by doing mitzvahs. People's minds and emotions follow their deeds. Ha'odam nifakipipulosov, as he constantly emphasizes over here. Therefore, ubekayach masov yomis hayetzahara, and through the constant, through the constant reinforcement, you kill the yetzahara. Ki acharei hapulos nimshochem halavavos because the hearts are drawn and follow the deeds. And therefore the reverse, even if you're at Tzadik Gomor, and your heart is righteous and straight and perfect and pure, Chofetz B'Torah Mitzvahs, you love mitzvahs, you love Torah, but in Ula Yasov Tomit B'Dvarim Shaldofi, if you spend your time in Narishkeit, in bad things, such as, for example, the king forces you to do something bad, some bad trait. For example, the Gemara says, I'm not going to discuss the first statement of the Gemara, which is Tov Shabirofim Gehenim, the best doctors go to Gehenim. That one we will leave for another time. But the other part, where it says that the butcher, a shaykh, is Shutfoy Shalamolek, is a partner with Amolek. We believe that animals can be killed and slaughtered and eaten. There's nothing wrong with using animals. But, nevertheless, if a person spends his time butchering animals, an impression is made on him. And therefore you become that amolic, that little part of you starts growing and growing and you develop cruelty. People, through their deeds, develop good qualities or bad qualities. If you do many mitzvahs, many, many mitzvahs, small ones, call puta, uputa, mistar, l'cheshben, gadol. Not only does it have a cumulative effect on the tzedakah's growth, but on your own personal growth. 
by doing many mitzvahs, each pruta, it adds and it adds to your cheshbon gadol, not merely to the cheshbon, not merely to the cheshbon of the tzedakah, but you gain from it, because each time you did the mitzvah, you grew, and you grow a little bit, and constant reinforcement. Schar mitzvah, mitzvah, one leads to the other. If you do bad things, even if it's permissible, even if it's just being a butcher, you develop cruelty. And the fact that people's deeds, the fact that their actions affect their hearts and their minds is something which is true by the greatest people. And let's now take two examples of this. One example, since we're talking about this idea of butchering, is from Rabbi Yudah Nasi. Earlier he mentioned Rabbi Yudah Nasi. The Gemara relates that one day Rabbi Yudah Nasi was walking down the street and a little calf comes running over to him on his way to the, to the veal shop. So, what does Rabbi Danasi say? He says, Be gone with you. Go to your, meet your destiny. Meet your destiny. What is the destiny of an animal? To be eaten. You do a mitzvah, you eat it on Shabbos, you eat it on Yontav, you make a brach on it. Rabbi Danasi was logically correct. Logically was correct. But in Shemaim they said, If you act cruel, we're going to act cruel to you. And as a result, Rabbi Danasi suffered with great pains and sicknesses for a number of years. The end of the story was that one day his, uh, his maid was sweeping out from under the bed and there were some weasels with new little weasel pups over there and uh, gerbils, whatever it was, uh, hamsters. And um, he said, leave them, you know, leave them alone, don't, you know, destroy them. In Shemaim they said, you acted mercifully, we're going to be merciful to you as well. Rabbi Yudan Nasi was logical and correct in his first statement, in his judgment. But he was judgmental. The fact is when you pass this kind of judgment, it affects you. Even this action of saying, be gone with you. A butcher is a partner with Amalek. That's what the, the, the Gemara says. That a butcher, by you're doing what's, what's correct, you're doing what's permissible, but you are growing a seed in your heart of cruelty. That's what Rabbi Nasi did. Those actions, that action alone, can influence him. In Shemaim they said, Mida Keneged Mida. The same way that you've developed a cruel kind of behavior in this little tiny fraction, although you were 100% right, but it influences you. Inevitably it influences everybody. Moshe Rabbeinu. Who can be greater than Moshe Rabbeinu? Even by Moshe Rabbeinu we find the exact same lesson. His actions will influence his behavior. And that's why Chazal tell us that for the first three Makos, Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't do it. He couldn't smite the river. He couldn't smite the sand because the sand did him a favor. The river did him a favor. It saved him. And it would show ingratitude for him to do it. Now we all know that obviously the sand and the river have no feelings. And they couldn't care less. And even if they could care, they'd say, smite me. Because this is the will of God. It's the will of God to bring a plague. Miracles come from it. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz at one point points out, and others say the same idea as well, that the action of doing it, which does violence, it does violence to the midah of gratitude and hakor satov, that would have influenced Moshe Rabbeinu. Because your deeds influence your emotion even if your mind knows better. Even if you're logical and you know better. But if you do a cruel, wicked <coughs> deed, and like the Gemara calls it, if you go to a well and you drink water from it, and then after you finish drinking it, you take it and you throw bricks and sand into it, that's an act of cruelty. It's an act of ingratitude. You develop these, char these character traits 
of ingratitude, of being this, this uncaring kind of person. It shows insensitivity. The fact that Moshe Rabbein has to be careful, to be sensitive to the sand, to be sensitive to the water, does the, have the opposite result. Even Moshe Rabbein was influenced by his actions. He's influenced by what he sees, he's influenced by his emotions. His mind tells him one thing, but the heart tells you something else, and people are drawn after their hearts, and their hearts are drawn after their deeds. Therefore, when Moshe Rabbeinu came down, the Marashah says, that when Moshe Rabbeinu came down from, the, from Har Sinai, and he saw the eagle, he got so incensed and so outraged that he threw down the tablets. He didn't believe God. God told him that the Jews are worshipping idols. Why wasn't he outraged and incensed at that time? The Territ says that his outrage comes from an emotion. And that emotion is influenced by what you see. And likewise, as the Chinuch tells us, your emotions are influenced by what actions you do. If you do actions that, that bring on the midah of hakoras, hatov, of gratitude, even if it's to sand and to water. But it saved me. I can't smite it. I can't turn it to lice. It's an act of cruelty. It's like what Rabbi Danasi said to the, to the animal. It's the person that drinks from the well and throws things into it. One deed after another leads a person to insensitivity. Even if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, even if you're Yehuda Anasi. That's what the Chinuch is saying. There's two kinds of individuals. If you're a bad person, but you have to give tzedakah not one time, but a thousand times. And you have to give kol pruta upruta, mitzvah for the Godel. And the Godel is not only the cheshman of tzedakah, it's your own personal cheshman. Hakol lefi rov hamasa, not lefi Godel hamasa. That's by a bad person. By a good person, the reverse is also true. If you do these things, then you're led into insensitive behavior. It leads to insensitivity yourself. Doctors and nurses that are forced into cancer wards and everything else, they develop a kind of insensitivity. It's, it's an inevitable result. They don't want it, but it happens. Because one thing leads to another. People are influenced by where they are, their environment, and by their behavior. Therefore, we need constant reinforcement. Even if our minds tell us and we know it, you still need that warning on every single pack of the cigarettes. You have to be, it has to be drilled into you, constantly drilled into you. You need constant reinforcement. So therefore, even a tzaddik, if he's forced into a profession that, that does bad things, the example we're using, let's say, is being the butcher, the king forces you to become a butcher. Eventually, you'll become a heavy-hearted um, person who just lacks the sensitivity. So therefore he says, and this is the important point over here in terms of understanding our original question. Because it is known, this is a truism. That everybody is influenced by his own actions. Hashem wanted to bring merit or to refine the Jewish people. That's why he gave us so many mitzvahs. He gave us so many mitzvahs. These are all ways of refining our character. In order to grab us in our totality of our being. In order we should be so involved in endeavors that are mitzvahs. That this will be for our own benefit. The purpose of all mitzvahs is not for God. It's for ourselves. And that's what we pointed out the other day when we, we once mentioned about the difference between a good guest and a bad guest. The one that looks at things, as we said about Hakar Satov, it's to influence yourself. It's to make you a kinder and better person. The, the, there's the question about 
mitzvahs, that whether mitzvahs have reasons or not, the mitzvah of Shiluch Hakam, sending away the mother bird, the Rambam says, yes, it has to do with being kind to the birds. Everybody else says, the Gemara says, it's only it's only a mitzvah, and it's not for the birds. Comes the Ramban and he explains it. He says that the point is not so much for the animal. The point is for the human. The human being who takes a mother bird and a, and a baby bird and shows that callous, cruel behavior, that lack of insensitivity, that lack of sensitivity rather, to motherhood, to take advantage of the animal, is, is like the person that spits into the well after he drinks from it. it. It comes from a cruel heart. It comes from that kind of behavior. The purpose of mitzvahs is refinement of character. It's not motivated for the bird, it's motivated for the human. The bird doesn't really care so much because the bird can't help himself and another bird will come along and eat both of them. The raven comes and eats the dove. And nature goes like that. It's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, right? But we humans can't follow that because we have to learn sensitivity for ourselves. And therefore, he says that the purpose of all mitzvahs is refinement of human character. Hashem therefore gives us so many mitzvahs in order to involve us in these good acts. Through the good acts, through the good deeds, we ourselves become dragged and involved in that. And we're zeichet to chaye olam. And that's what Chazal say. If you have a mezuzah, and you wear titzes, and you wear tefillin, all of these mitzvahs that are constantly involved in the person, keep them constantly preoccupied, will affect you and will cause you to become a different kind of person. Therefore, he concludes, Lochein atah, therefore you, my son, re'ei gam re'ei, look, look very carefully. What kind of business do you do? What kind of job are you in? See what your endeavors are. Because whatever you do, that's what you'll be. Because you will be dragged after them. You won't drag them after you. You could be a good person doing bad things. The bad things drag you with them. You won't turn the bad things into something good. Don't let your Yetzirah give you the confidence to say, My heart is good. I'm pure. I have faith in Hashem. What's so terrible? More hefsid yesh. What loss is there? What damage is there? That I relax a little bit and go on vacation and, and, and take a little bit, you know, and hang out, as they say. To hang out by the stoop, to hang out by the street corners. What do I lose? I hang out with the lates and with the fools and with the people that are scoffers. What do I lose? The Dabritzachos to speak these jokes and all of these things and to become a comedian. What's so terrible? What damage will do me? I'm a good guy. He says over there, I'm not doing any sins. My heart is pure. My little pinky, he says, is, is thicker than the greatest of them. They're not going to drag me. They won't influence me. No, my son, do not say that. Be careful. Guard yourself. Be a, be, take care in your environment. You'll be ensnared in their trap. Rabim Shosu. Many have drank from this cup of poison, but you, my son, save your own soul. Now that you know this, he says, don't ask me this question again. <laughs> now that you know, don't ask me again. Do not question anymore. Why we have so many mitzvahs. The multitude of mitzvahs shouldn't bother you anymore. Why we have to constantly remember Nisei Mitzrayim 
Shehem Amud Godel B'Torah Seinu. This is a great principle in the Torah. Ki Bravosa Sokeinu the Spoiler Adam because we'll be influenced. I'm not going to go into why Yitzias Mitzrayim, but let's just make one brief mention based on what we've been saying earlier. Yitzias Mitzrayim tells us that we have to constantly remember Hakaris Hatov. That's the end all of the Torah. The Torah is recognition of good. We owe. We have to feel responsible. Yitzias Mitzrayim teaches us HaKoros HaTov. By doing all of these mitzvahs and constantly remembering, Jews become sensitive and, and have appreciation. We appreciate what America does for us. We appreciate what everybody does for us. But that comes from the constant remembrance of HaKoros HaTov. And that's why we have so many mitzvahs. Mitzvahs influence us. We don't influence our deeds. Our deeds influence us much more than we influence them. And therefore, precisely because HaKoros HaTov is such an important concept in the Torah, that the whole Torah is built on it, we have so many mitzvahs that are reminders of how we're supposed to feel to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. In fact, that's what Rabbi Yoyinus says in Baruch Staf Hey, Eizehu ben Olam Habo, Zehasomich Gul Why, says Rabbi Yoyinus, why is being Somich Gul make you worthy of Olam Habo? Because by being somech gu'ula by recalling how we owe Hashem and that we're His avodim, and that we He took us out of Mitzrayim and we owe Him so much, and then we go into tefillah. Tefillah is the avoda, the avoda should believe that we're, that the Eved is supposed to do for Hakadosh Baruch Hu. That makes us a ben olam haba. But a deeper understanding is that what is tefillah? Tefillah is an a, a act of requesting from Hashem our needs. That means we recognize that all of our need can only be fulfilled by Hashem. That is the avoid that Hashem wants of us, this recognition. And therefore when we are we call Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and we recall Gulas Mitzrayim, and then we go into Tefillah, and we're Makir Toiv, we recognize the goodness of Hashem, and we recognize our responsibility, which is precisely this recognition, and this appreciation of Hashem. That's what Olam Habo is. Olam Haba is when you're Yoshev in Nana Mizivashina, when you're able to commune directly with Hakodesh Baruch Hu and feel the intensity of the splendor of the divine glory. That's the essence of Olam Haba. When a person is able to be makirtoiv, to see what is good, and to appreciate and to be sensitive, he's a Ben Olam Haba already in this world. But the basic premise of the Chinuch is that all of our deeds influence our emotions and influence our thoughts and change our character. The Torah therefore is deed-oriented. It gives us so many mitzvahs that are action-oriented in order that we thereby influence our character. But now precisely to place what we just said now from the Chinuch with what the Ksav Seifer says, together we could now appreciate what Jewish education is and what the Sefer HaChinuch is. And this point of the Sefer HaChinuch that all of our deeds, they are the mechanchen. Our actions are our own mechanchen. This is true not only with children, it's true with adults. That's what the Sefer HaChinuch is writing. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us so many mitzvahs in order to be mechanchos. Our actions are our mechanchen. Our deeds are our teachers. And that's how we raise our children. We don't raise them to let them run wild and then on their own to make the right decisions because then it's too late. This goes back now to the, what the Ksav Seifer says. If you want to avoid a Ben Russia, then you have to start off when he's a She'ene or De'alishol. Because if you don't, 
then his deeds will have influenced his thoughts to the point of where he's not going to think the right thoughts and he won't have the right questions. And even if he does, he'll give himself the wrong answers because he doesn't want to know the right answers anymore. You have to be mechanech, the child, when he's still a she'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'e'
most of the world is enslaved, ushvuyim, and captured biyatavosa. They're the property of their base desires. And the one singular individual who is unique, who takes upon himself to swim against the tide, against the current, he becomes considered a stranger. He's strange and weird. He's an oisnam. To the point where he's a pella. He's so unique. A person only attains true freedom by Torah. Torah is a liberating experience. We're talking now why there's so many mitzvahs. Part of it is to free the person from the slavery to his taiva. Chazal say that only through Torah can a person be freed of the bonds and the ties of his taiva, from the prison of his taiva. Only through the Torah is a person to free, able to free his true free will. And somebody who doesn't learn Torah is not really free. His mind and his heart, as we pointed out, is influenced by his wicked deeds. A person is drawn after his base instincts because of the activities that a person does by following his taiva it schleps his mind as we've said from the chinuch his mind and his character are formed and formulated based on his deeds and because his deeds are enslaved to his taivas to his desires to his baser instincts to his passions therefore his thoughts and his character are likewise going to be drawn after that his own mind, his thoughts, his emotions themselves are not free because since he is a slave to his passion, indeed, his mind likewise is going to follow suit. Therefore, he's like a slave, as if he is, his mind is taken over by some other master, by some other force. He has no true mind, true free will to think dispassionately, to think objectively. His master is his taiva, his desires, his baser instincts. These are his masters, and they control not only his deeds, but they also then control his emotions, and they control his mind, as we've said before. This Ebenezer, once we combine it with what we've been saying from the Sefer HaChinuch, tells us a tremendous lesson that people, in terms of their objective reasoning, in terms of their logic, are also not free to think clearly because after all if a person's deeds and actions and his activities influence his character and his mind and his emotions then his logical reasoning likewise becomes no longer a free agent no longer is he objective no longer does he have the same free will because his mind follows his heart and his heart follows his deeds your actions are what draw your activities draw your emotion and your heart and your heart and your emotion draws your mind your reasoning and your logic you're no longer a logical person therefore people will not think clearly because they are slaves to their passions and their minds are slaves to their hearts if that's the case we now have a beautiful pshat in what this Kalbuchomer is that Moshe Rabbeinu says. The Jews aren't listening to me. Why? Because they are slaves to Paro. They're Avodim the Paro. They're slaves to Paro. 
if the Jews can't listen to me and can't hear the words of God because they're slaves, how can Paro then listen to me? Paro is the biggest slave of all to Paro. If the Jews that are enslaved by another human being can't hear the clear word of God, then how could Paro, who is enslaved to a greater master, to his own passion, to his own Yetzirah, to his own time, to his own base desires, how can he possibly listen to me? He's the biggest slave of all. And this, of course, explains to us the whole concept of Paro's heart being hardened. It's almost against his will. He almost can't help himself. That's the effects of sin. Sin draws. It draws Avera Guerrera Savera. So finally you lose all free will and you're incapable of making logical, rational decisions and choices. You're enslaved to your Yetzirah. People are drawn and influenced by their actions. And if their actions, as the Chinuch says, is the action of an Avera, then your thoughts follow suit. The stipler writes in the Sefer Birchas Peretz, an interesting lesson that we could learn from the Makas Tzfardeya. Chazal tell us, according to one pshat and Rashid way he brings it down, is that it was one giant frog, and the more they beat it, the more these little tiny frogs came jumping, hopping out of it. He says, take a look at the muster that we could learn from this, regarding a person who loses control of his temper. Here the Egyptians see that each time they smite the frog, streams and streams of tiny frogs come. Wouldn't it be logical then that you should stop beating it? But what did they do? That's not the way they acted. The more they did, the more they beat it, the more angrier they got, the more they beat it, and the more frogs came. That's what the Midas Hakas, when a person loses his temper, tells you. You become self-destructive. You become so illogical that you work against yourself. You work against that which you don't want. Kas tells you that more frogs are coming from it, I'm angrier. If I'm angrier, I gotta beat it more. If I beat it more, more frogs come, I gotta be angrier. If I gotta be angrier and more mad, I gotta keep beating it. Kas is anger. Anger is madness. And although it's an English word, and mad means insane, and mad means angry, it's both. Because people that are angry actually become mad. They lose control, they lose their temper, and they lose their minds. It's a madness. It's a madness to beat the giant frog and to produce more frogs. That's counterproductive. But that's the, that's the power of chaos, of anger, to be mad, to produce madness. And therefore, the more frogs that came from them, the angrier they became. And they, lo they lost control of themselves, and they kept hitting it and hitting it till all of Egypt was full of frogs. The Lamdukha to teach you. When you're in a fight, what you should do is stop. You should let yourself be insulted and don't respond. Because if you respond, you just make the fight worse and it's counterproductive to yourself. If you fight back, if you yell back, what you're doing is you're putting out a fire with gasoline. You're adding gasoline to the fire of Machlaikis of fighting, of argument. That's exactly what the Egyptians did. It was like trying to douse a fire by pouring gasoline on it. And the greater the fire becomes, the more gasoline you pour. And the more you pour, the greater the fire. Makas Tzfardeya, based on this medrash, teaches us this lesson. 
of how human beings could lose control to the point of where they act illogically against their own better judgment. The mind follows the heart, and the heart follows its actions. And people could become so illogical that they'll work against themselves. The key to understanding the heaviness of Paro's heart begins already by the Jewish people. You see what happens when you're enslaved. You can't hear, you can't listen, you can't think. And Paro is a greater slave to his own Yetzir Horror, and he's not going to listen even more so to the point of where it's self-destructive, to the point of where he ruins Egypt and he brings down his empire because he can't hear, he can't listen. He's enslaved to his own Yetzir Horror to the point of self-destruction. We now have a very good understanding of what it means for Aksha slave power that power's heart was hardened. It was hardened as a result of his own sin. We also have a beautiful pshat now in what the Kabuchimer was of Moshe Rabbeinu. Ultimately, Paro is the greatest slave of all, a slave of his own Yetzir Horror. That's what it means he doesn't have free will. His free will was taken away by his own self-destructive acts.